Jeffrey Epstein never faced the consequences for allegedly trafficking dozens of girls, some as young as age 14, and engaging in sex acts with them. He committed suicide in jail 35 days after he was arrested, avoiding a trial and potentially half a century in prison for his evil actions. Now, however, more than two years later, at the Thurgood Marshall U.S. Courthouse in Lower Manhattan, Epstein's former lover and alleged enabler, Ghislaine Maxwell, is on trial for aiding and abetting Epstein and satisfying his unmitigated sexual appetite for and exploitation of vulnerable girls. Hello, everyone. This is Techtopia. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Prosecutors allege that Ghislaine Maxwell was at the heart of the trafficking conspiracy that Epstein was accused of carrying out both in his Manhattan townhouse and luxurious Palm Beach estate. Maxwell's lawyers say that she is simply the proverbial fall guy for Epstein's actions. The trial is casting a lens on the tragic world of human trafficking and how wealthy, powerful people can engage often over decades in these crimes and escape seemingly with impunity. Joining me now to talk about the Ghislaine Maxwell trial and what it teaches us about the state of human trafficking today and the role of technology is Anjana Rajan, the chief technology officer of Polaris, an NGO that's leading a data-driven social justice movement to fight human trafficking. My former colleague at Palantir Technologies, Rajan's expertise is applying cryptography to human rights and national security issues. She's the former chief technology officer of Callisto, a nonprofit that builds advanced cryptographic technology to combat sexual assault. Rajan has testified before Congress as an expert witness to speak about ways that technology can protect survivors and victims of human trafficking. Anjana, welcome to Techtopia. Thanks so much for having me, Chetra. So your uh, initial thoughts about the trial and Maxwell's legal strategy or that of her lawyers, you know, they're trying to say that she's being put on trial because Epstein is not here, kind of a guilt by proxy when it seemed like she was playing an intimate role in grooming these victims. What do you think of that and sort of what your research finds? Yeah, so um, Ghislaine Maxwell, just to give some background, um, is a British socialite who is most notoriously known for her association with Jeffrey Epstein. And so her federal trial started this week and she's facing six counts, including sex trafficking of a minor for helping Epstein sexually abuse girls from starting from 1990s. And so um, Ghislaine has pleaded not guilty to these charges, but the prosecutors will be arguing that she did play a key role in Epstein's trafficking ring. And so they're going to show how she lured young victims into giving sexualized massages. They're going to highlight just how close and intimate her relationship with Jeffrey Epstein was. But probably most importantly, they're going to highlight the testimony of four victims who were abused by Epstein when they were children. And so the key here for the prosecutors will be to prove that Maxwell knowingly recruited children into Epstein's uh, dangerous circle. The defense, on the other hand, is going to try and portray Maxwell as a victim of some sorts. But when Epstein survivors spoke to Polaris, they vehemently refuted that narrative. And so at um, a hearing last year where Ghislaine Maxwell was denied bail, one of Epstein's accusers said that Maxwell was, quote, a sexual predator who groomed and abused me and other countless other children and young women. Without Ghislaine, Jeffrey could not have done what he did, end quote. And as you mentioned, you know, Jeffrey Epstein committed suicide as he was awaiting his trial in 2019. And so this, as you can imagine, was just devastating for his victims because it robbed them of the chance to achieve justice. And so this, this trial of Ghislaine Maxwell is, is so important 
because it's not only a chance to hold her accountable for her crimes, but it's a chance to prosecute Epstein by proxy too. And if she's convicted, she could face up to 80 years in prison. The the conduct that prosecutors allege Maxwell of being engaged in, of um, taking girls on shopping trips, asking them about their lives and their families and their schools, she was systematically, they allege, uh, trying to win their trust and then sort of escalating it into uh, sexual conversation and then eventually sexual conduct. Is that the kind of pattern of uh, behavior that uh, you see in, in the conversations you have uh, at Polaris when you uh, interview victims of human trafficking? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting when um, these very high profile human trafficking cases happen because they get a lot of attention because they seem really sensationalist or unique. But when you actually look behind, you know, the expensive scenery or the celebrity names, the strategies that traffickers are using are the same, whether they're, you know, luring victims to a private island or somewhere less glamorous. And that's certainly um, the case here with, with Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein. Um, the, the issue of grooming is, is a really big point in the Maxwell case, and it's also a big point in, in many sex trafficking situations across the country. And that's because traffickers target and build trust with people who are vulnerable, and then they create a sense of dependence by pretending to meet their needs. And then the traffickers will subtly promote the idea that selling sexual services is normal and acceptable and necessary. And the accusations against Ghislaine Maxwell mirrored this process in a couple of ways. So the first is the way that Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein targeted their victims. Traffickers are really adept at noticing people in need, and Epstein was said to target people who came from disadvantaged or unstable families, people who were in the foster care system, people who were at risk of experiencing homelessness or having drug habits. And victims say that Maxwell managed this recruitment by encouraging victims themselves to peer recruit others in desperate circumstances. So that's the first pattern. The second pattern is the way she gained trust. So traffickers will build relationships with victims and will establish trust by, as you said, appearing to listen and care deeply. And so victims recall Maxwell initially befriending them, asking them about their lives and taking them to the movies and shopping trips. And Ghislaine used the fact that she was a woman as a way to disarm her victims put them at ease and build trust. The third way that Ghislaine Maxwell uh, pattern matched to what we see in trafficking is the way she would meet her victim's needs. So once a trafficker gains a victim's trust and learns what their needs are, they will offer a solution while also wielding this unspoken power to take away what was just offered. So victims say that Maxwell and Epstein promised them jobs and paid for their clothes and their education which meant that as a result, these victims felt indebted to them. And then fourth is like the way she normalized exploitation. So over time, traffickers will condition their victims to believe that exploitation is normal. In fact, in um, Maxwell's indictment, it says explicitly that she would develop a rapport with her victims and then try to normalize sexual abuse. And one of the main ways she did this was by being present for the sexual interactions with Epstein. So it's all to say that the tactics of her crimes did match a very familiar pattern that, that we see here at Polaris. Yeah, and obviously in coming weeks, prosecutors uh, will have to prove their case. And these are, at the moment, we have to say, allegations uh, that uh, will have to be proven in the court of law. 
But I guess what it says is that, if true, that you know some things just haven't changed. I guess over the over the years in terms of human behavior when it comes to you know exploiting uh, young and vulnerable children uh, when it comes to human trafficking. Uh, so there are some old school strategies, but increasingly technology, as you've talked about on this podcast even before, is playing a role in aiding and abetting uh, human traffickers. Can you talk a little bit about what you are seeing in terms of this evolution of human trafficking and the role of technology? Mm-hmm, totally. You know, it's funny, even though our attention is on Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein right now, it's, it is important to remember that there's 25 million victims who suffer from this crime every single day across the world, including here in the United States. And, you know, human trafficking is not just an act of violence, it's a financial crime. And it's this massive illicit economy worth $150 billion. And so we think a lot at Polaris about the business of human trafficking. And so a couple of years ago, we wrote a report called The Typology of Modern Slavery. And in this report, we identified 25 business models of sex and labor trafficking. And it shows just how trafficking happened in plain sight in this country. And so it's easy to see that when a new technology becomes deeply embedded in our economy, that then becomes the medium in which human trafficking also happens. So you could talk about how survivors or sorry, how victims are recruited online, how the marketplace exists online, but also the off-ramps, right? So on the flip side, I'd also argue that in order to solve this problem at scale, technology has to be part of the solution. And um, that's what makes this job so interesting is that you can take a piece of technology that's been weaponized against a victim and repurpose it to restore their power. And what, what do uh, uh, Maxwell's sort of alleged misdeeds and this trial teach us about the role of women in human trafficking? I mean, often, most often they are the victim, but in, in you know, Sometimes they're the enabler and, you know, as a woman, we want to say, how could you, right? But obviously they are and they can. What what goes into the psychology of that that enables it to happen? Yeah, I think most simply put, human trafficking is about the powerful exploiting the vulnerable for profit. And what that means is that people of all genders can be traffickers and people of all genders can be victims. And I think that's a really important fact that we're reminded of um, in this case. And, and you know, you've talked about the business of human trafficking and, you know, Epstein is just one example, but there are other uh, examples of uh, very powerful men engaging in human trafficking and building kind of this ecosystem around it of enablers, groomers, potentially co-abusers, even in Epstein's case, where uh, prosecutors have uh, uh, brought out uh, witnesses who have alleged that there was this intricate system of rules that Maxwell was imposing, you know, making sure that people kept the secret, you know, uh, you know, you often wonder, how is it that so many people can be convinced to keep a secret like that? And I wonder what, what your research has found. Yeah, I think, you know, we, we forget that, um, you know, human traffickers are, are rarely, um, you know, strangers who are kidnapping you off the street. It's, it's often a person who, who you know, who you trust, who um, you, you rely on. And so I think, um, you know, when we think about the, the societal structures that, that create power asymmetry, it is easy to understand why, um, you know, women in particular are, are vulnerable because they have lacked the same political, economic, and social power um, over, over, you know, over the course of time. And so, it, while to say that it's it's true that any gender and any any gender can be both a trafficker and a victim, it does 
remind us that um, the, 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 the social structures in place span generations and generations, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, he, Epstein was, uh, you know, very well uh, connected. He was a wealthy executive, you know, former school teacher. He knew celebrities, politicians, and he had also been investigated in Florida, right, more than a decade before in connection with sexual abuse of underage girls. But as that brilliant series of stories reported in the Miami Herald showed, you know, he then struck some kind of a secret deal with prosecutors and was released after serving 13 months for state prostitution crimes. Is there often a lack of culpability even among law enforcement or believability towards these victims that allows this stuff to happen and go unchecked? Oh, absolutely. And and we always say, you know, one of the the unfortunate realities that are all too common for survivors is that accountability is, is very rare. And so when we think about how do we shape policy in this space, it's recognizing what does it look like to truly be survivor-centered, which means both making sure that victims themselves are not being criminalized, um, but that they are able to hold their perpetrators accountable. And so it's a really complex issue that requires a really multidisciplinary approach. How has yours and Polaris's education around human trafficking sort of evolved over the years? And how does this case feeds into that education? Is there one thing that kind of has struck you about this case or others like it that has changed the way you view human trafficking and, and how you help combat it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Polaris is probably best known for um, operating the National Human Trafficking Hotline. And we've done that for the last 14 years. And, you know, we have answered over 340,000 signals. We've identified nearly 74,000 cases. We've assisted over 30,000 victims and survivors. And as a result, we've generated the single largest data set on human trafficking in the country. And we've learned a lot about how sex and labor trafficking work. And the biggest thing we learned is that human trafficking doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens when the systems that are supposed to protect and support people fail. It happens when communities burdened by longstanding social and economic inequities lack opportunity. And when these injustices are broken, it's what makes people vulnerable to exploitation in the first place. So if we want to move forward and ultimately prevent human trafficking from happening in the first place, like what we're seeing here with Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein, then we need to take an intersectional approach. So for us, this means that opposing racism and anti-LGBTQ discrimination and gender-based violence is fighting human trafficking. It means building affordable housing is fighting human trafficking. It means supporting living wages and safe working conditions is fighting human trafficking. It means strengthening the foster care and addiction treatment systems in this country is fighting human trafficking, right? Improving education and healthcare is also fighting trafficking. And so when we think, look at things like ending mass incarceration and fixing our broken immigration system and combating climate change, right? These are all parts of fighting human trafficking. And so for us at Polaris, we see this as a, a very big and ambitious fight ahead of us, but it's one that actually all of us can contribute to, even if we don't see ourselves directly working in this movement. And so what is your current focus in terms of human trafficking and uh, the nexus between uh, the, the business of human trafficking, as you as you so well described it? Yeah. So um, in, as we enter this, you know, we're celebrating our, our 20th anniversary in, in the new year, which is um, kind of wild to think about. And so as we enter this, <laughs> as we enter this, this new decade, um, we really want to think about like taking a complex systems approach. And so when we think about what we have done 
thus far, it's, it's about responding to victims in crisis, but we want to now design programs that prevent trafficking from happening um, in the first place. And, you know, we, we've talked about this, but we take a three-pronged approach to this. So first and foremost, we center survivors in everything we do. The second piece is really shifting the conversation about trafficking to talk about justice and equity, and, and particularly around racial and gender-based equity. And then third, we're technology-enabled, and that's obviously an area that I get <laughs> excited about. And so some of our, our programs include not only the human trafficking hotline, but the financial intelligence unit, which is our, our foray into the anti-money laundering space, and our work on combating disinformation and violent, violent extremism, which you and I have spoken about in our last conversation. So it's exciting to think about, um, you know, kind of the, ne the next frontier for us, a lot of which is, is taking a, a very technology forward approach um, and really thinking about how do we, you know, out outsmart our adversaries on the chessboard by being two steps ahead. And that's really where a lot of our, our work is shifting. And in terms of technology, obviously, the means of paying uh, for these crimes is evolving as well with the evolution and uh, increased adoption of cryptocurrency. Is that something that you've got an increased focus on? Yeah, I, I think about this a lot and, and always excited to talk to you about it, Chitra. You know, I think kind of just zooming out a bit, um, you know, the Internet, which currently is in its second generation, is, is a double edged sword, right? On one hand, it has driven transformative innovation and it's clearly provided benefit to society. But on the other hand, it's also been a conduit for the darkest sides of human behavior, right? It's just in the last few years, the largest technology companies have been complicit in aiding human trafficking, conspiracy theories, genocide, authoritarianism, domestic terrorism, right? This is what we've been kind of coming, having a reckoning with in just these last few months. And, you know, while I think employee whistleblowing and you know calls for federal regulation and you know forming oversight bodies is is long overdue i don't believe that these alone will fundamentally address the root cause of the problem right because you know these catastrophes were not simply due to the isolated actions of a of an un unethical ceo it, it's the result of a fundamentally flawed internet architecture and broken incentive structures that enable the powerful to exploit the vulnerable for profit. And so if we maintain the status quo, we're gonna to continue to see economic equality, human rights and democracy crumble while financial crimes, violence and fascism rise. And so from a crypto lens, this, this idea of this new internet architecture uh, that could, that's emerging to solve these problems is, is, is it's getting a lot of people optimistic, right? And this third generation of the internet called Web3 is built upon principles of decentralization, transparency, and cryptography. And so people who are, are bullish on Web3 see a number of, of benefits, right? Including resiliency against cybersecurity threats, including um, broader inclusion and trust in the global economy, um, and, and an opportunity to really shift power back to the participants of, of a democratic society. And so, while I, I agree fully that these properties can benefit open society, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that we're going to be able to protect the most vulnerable people in our communities, including those who have, um, you know, suffered at the hands of sexual abuse, labor exploitation, racial discrimination, state-sponsored brutality, violent extremism, and so forth. 
because survivors of, of these forms of trauma um, have always faced and will continue to face challenges restoring their freedom and holding their perpetrators accountable for their crimes. And so even as new Web3 technologies emerge, there is a high risk that exploitation and, and abuse will persist unless we intentionally design the technologies to, to natively protect them. And so this is the big thing that I'm, I'm thinking about and, and kind of obsessing about right now at Polaris, because in order to build Web3 in the right way, you need to be um, you know, both an expert on human trafficking and national security and human rights, and also be an expert on cryptography. And so to me, you know, how we build Web3 is a really urgent human rights imperative because it's going to dictate who will hold uh, social, political, and economic power in the near future and who won't. And that's um, something that keeps me up at night. And do you think that, you know, I mean, Polaris is 20 years in the making now and has or anniversary, uh, you know, as you mentioned, and and this battle is still going on. So, I mean, are you optimistic or pessimistic about whether Web3 is actually going to, again, you know, protect the rich and the powerful, you know, much like all other technologies, you know, in its wake? Yeah. I mean, I have to be optimistic <laughs> to do this job, <laughs> I suppose. But, you know, I mean, the idea of exploiting another person for profit is the oldest crime in the book. I mean, it's it, it's quite literally biblical and it's what motivated chattel slavery in the United States in 1619. It's what motivates human trafficking today in our own backyards. And so, you know, I don't see my job as the CTO of Polaris to end slavery for all time. I mean, I think that's, that's, that's obviously not realistic, but I think what we can do is to say, are we moving this fight forward so that the next generation can fight it as well? And I think human rights is, is, is not something that anyone, any generation can take for granted. It is, an active, it is an active effort that we have to constantly take. And that requires understanding how, how these crimes and how these injustices persist and finding new and innovative ways to, um, to protect the most vulnerable in our society. Yeah, speaking of the most vulnerable and, and going back to the Ghislaine Maxwell trial, you know, she has now been charged with a longer list of crimes than Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, and her crimes uh, alleged have date back further and she potentially could serve as long, if not a longer sentence in jail if convicted of these crimes. Do you believe that if that happens uh, and she is proven guilty of those crimes, will justice finally have been done for these victims? I think for survivors, you know, justice is is a complex is is complex, right? There will there there will never be a way to repair the harm and damage that the victims and survivors have have faced. But the criminal justice system is is one one lever, and so we need to when we think about um, you know restoring justice for for those who have suffered at the hands of of these abusers, we have to think about it holistically, right? So that's why it's it's how do we make sure that the next generation doesn't get abused in the same way. How do we fix the underlying systems to prevent this from happening in the first place? And I think as we focus on our work, um, that's really where we wanna start shifting our attention because um, we wanna make sure that as few people experience these, this horrible trauma um, that, that these victims did. So Anjana, one of the, uh, intriguing uh, aspects of the uh, Maxwell trial and, and all the reporting around Epstein has been 
this long list of powerful men who have been associated with him, not accused of anything, but they were in his circle, right, when all of this was going on. And some of those names of undoubtedly are go, have been and will continue to be released in the course of this trial. What are the implications uh, that you see uh, at Polaris of uh, this, you know, this this long list of powerful people that were in the periphery of the actions that were going on? Uh, as far as we know, for now, uh, they haven't themselves been accused of anything, but. What does that say about societal institutions and human trafficking, and especially as we sort of look ahead to potential uh, upcoming elections and also the conspiracy movement that QAnon has generated around uh, human trafficking? We talked a bit about this in our last conversation, but I think it's really important to understand the role of human trafficking in in our democracy and in um, in our in a functioning democracy, and so, you know, when you think about what we're coming, we're entering into an election year in 2022, and we're going to find out in the next few weeks um, some of the most powerful players in our in our institutions having betrayed our trust. And so, what I worry about is if we're thinking about the implications of the Ghislaine Maxwell trial for our for our for our national security we need to think about how will the betrayal the institutional betrayal that will eventually come out of this we find out that people in power were part of this how will that fuel conspiracy theories how will that weaken trust in institutions and what does that mean for us um, in the long run and so all of to say all of which to say um we need to care about human trafficking for so many reasons um especially when it comes to issues of, of an open society and, and a functioning democracy. In some ways, what you said just kind of reminds me of the scandal around the, the Catholic Church with, uh, with sex abuse and, and the, the incredible fallout that has come of it in some ways. But in other ways, you know, these institutions keeps going on. I mean, is that a, is that a good comparison or not? Oh, it's a fantastic comparison. You know, and I think this is why I find human trafficking such a, a a really powerful case study in the broader conversation around human rights and an open society because human trafficking touches upon so many so many issues um, you know whether it be sexual violence or institutional power being abused or financial crimes or extremism and I think we're 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 at risk of seeing um, a fallout of 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 epic proportions when we learn um, the, the, the true the true details, and I think we're going to find out um, some information that's going to be quite quite shocking. Does the does the Jeffrey Epstein saga and the Ghislaine Maxwell trial just feed into the narrative of the QAnon conspiracy theorists and other conspiracy theorists and allow them to say, "Look, we told you so," and this is why we are on a rampage, you know, attempting to, for instance, destroy democracy as happened on January 6th. Totally. In fact, leading up to this trial, we were doing a lot of um, prep work to, pre to prepare for the inevitable disinformation cycle that will, that will manifest from this. You know, we talked about this in the last episode of like, why do violent extremist groups use 
human trafficking disinformation to 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 incite violence, right? We've seen this in with um, you know radical jihadism and white supremacy alike, and the reason is because it's incredibly believable because it's a real problem. You know, Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein are real. They quite literally are creating a global cabal of pedophiles. And so when you then tell somebody that this is happening, you can't dismiss this and say this is crazy because this is happening. And so we often see kind of the rise of the um, QAnon rhetoric happening actually in the wake of Jeffrey Epstein because it, it, it is real. What we have to then separate is don't conflate that with, uh, don't confuse the fact that Jeffrey Epstein and Glenn Maxwell are committing human trafficking because they are Democrat or whatever. It's because of all the reasons we just talked about, right? The, the, the way they exploited people for power and for profit, the way they groomed um, vulnerable communities. That, that's the part that we need to educate um, people on and say like these underlying um, systems are what we need to pay attention to, not the sensationalist or partisan aspects of it. And I think what we're seeing right now is, um, you know, this will continue to become a really um, dangerous narrative to exploit because uh, it deepens existing political fault lines that are deep seated. You know, in um, a few weeks ago, the Aspen Institute released a paper. Uh, a report on information disorder. And one of the big takeaways from the paper was that people don't see a piece of disinformation and suddenly become bigoted or racist or misogynist. They see a piece of disinformation and it gives them permission to, to practice an already held belief. And so what is a, there is no bigger permission slip than disinformation about human trafficking because it's the ultimate feeling of, of feeling of altruism that you're protecting a child. And so when you look at what happened on January 6th, you know, you watch people who showed up to that, to the, to the Capitol, thinking that they were saving the children and then committing an act of domestic terrorism. And so this is where you have to be really careful and understand how does human trafficking disinformation manifest? Why is it so sticky? And why is it so important that the way we talk about this trial and the way we cover it in the media and, and have conversations about it has to be focusing on uh, the accurate nature of this of this crime? Anjana, it's always so good to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me today and for this sobering but very enlightening conversation. It's my pleasure, Chitra. Anjana Rajan is the Chief Technology Officer of Polaris, an NGO that's leading a data-driven social justice movement to fight human trafficking. My former colleague at Palantir, Rajan's expertise is applying cryptography to human rights and national security issues. She's the former Chief Technology Officer of Callisto, a nonprofit that builds advanced cryptographic technology to combat sexual assault. Recently, Rajan was a tech policy fellow at the Aspen Institute, where she worked on preventing mass gun violence caused by white supremacist terrorists. She's also an independent consultant for the Homeland Security Advisory Council that supports the country's top national security leaders on cybersecurity policy. Rajan has testified before Congress as an expert witness to speak about ways that technology can protect survivors and victims of human trafficking. This is Techtopia. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Techtopia is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. 
Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of Tectopia. I'll see you then.